to, we, we are looking through 1 John, and we're going to continue our, our studies in 1 John, and uh, Brian will come up in a moment and read from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. But what we're going to look at is how God is light. And for some of you, you may say, okay, that's fine. God is light. That's some of you, maybe you're not a Christian, you're not used to coming to church, you might say, just a religious talk. Those of you who are Christians will go, yeah, 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 that's good, but um, nice to know that God is light, but how does that impact me? I was discussing this with a friend of mine this week, and he just sent me a text just this morning, actually, and he said, in his view, that it is the most life-changing truth that you can come across as a Christian and as a non-Christian. So I hope that you'll see that. But uh, we begin by reading in God's Word in John chapter 3, and Brian will come and read God's Word to us. John chapter 3, page 1065. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth 
comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's turn to 1 John, the first letter of John. Um, I actually don't have a pew Bible, so if someone's got a pew Bible, you could let me know. What was that, Alan? 1225, if you've got a pew Bible. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light, in Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. At the beginning of that section, it says this is the message that we have heard. And the important thing about that, of course, is John's saying, we haven't made this up. This is from God. This is God's Word. And we, we come to this with that in mind. And again, if you're not sure of that, if you're thinking that, it's just a, uh, it seems, you know, almost a bit arrogant. How can a human being say this is God's Word? Well, he could if God had inspired him, and the Bible claims to be inspired, and you're not really in a position to say, no, that cannot be. Uh, I would suggest as you look at this, you'll realize just how uh, amazing this really is. It's a message that has come from God. And it, the, the message is very simple. He says, God is light. You can see there, I do what I did last week, give you three scriptures out of the Gospel of John as well. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I think that uh, in John's letter and in John's gospel, the three L's, Jesus as light, Jesus as love, Jesus as life, are themes that go through that. And the other verse to have there is 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, speaking of God who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Now, why is that important? And why, if you've got your Bible, it says God is light. Why doesn't he stop? Why doesn't he just say God is light? He then goes on to say, in him there is no darkness at all. And I sat up in my nice bright room over there, looking at that phrase, going, why did he say there's no darkness at all? Is, is it just another way of saying the same thing? And then I, I, then I realized, uh, and studying it, and I realized what was happening. Because what John is saying, he's, he's writing, remember, he's an old man at this point, he's a fisherman who became a leader in the church, he's a witness, as he's already stated, to Jesus Christ, and he's talking about God, and he's talking about Jesus, and he's saying, He's speaking about something that's very attractive, an attractive righteousness. He's saying this light is pure and unadulterated and uncorrupted. If you um, remember what this building was like, we used to have these
who are really, if you, if you go home and you're phoning a friend and you say, what were you doing today? I was in church, you say, and I was learning about monism and dualism and so on. Please forgive me. Please don't instantly switch off. You can get this supposing you're, well, there's some people here 10 years old, and all you 10-year-olds at the front, you're going to be asked afterwards in a quiz about what monism, 11, sorry, Emma-Jane, 12, 12, okay. <laughs> 12 years old are going to have to uh, tell us what monism and dualism is. Now, if you get this, honestly, if you've got, you'll get this, you'll pass a philosophy degree in any university, no problem, because this is the foundation of human thought, okay? And let me just explain this, because this is where John is, is coming from. We're asking, what's good and evil? How do you know what good and evil is anyway? How do you know that something's good? How do you know that something's bad? Well, there have been two standard sets of answers given in, in human history. One is what's called monism, and that's the idea that everything is one. Now, you see that in lots of different ways. For example, if you were a Marxist materialist, you would be a monist because you believe everything is material. Everything. I debate, as you know, sometimes with um, some scientists. There are a lot of scientists who are Christians, but there are some who are not. And sometimes you debate with an atheist scientist, and you'll just say, everything is chemical. Everything is material. Well, that's monism. There's a spiritual kind of that. Buddhist spirituality, for example, or um, Hindu spirituality would call the oneness Brahma and would say, we're all one. Everything belongs to the one. And sometimes you'll meet people and they seem very spiritual and they're sitting around a candle going om and basically saying we're part of the one. We're all one together and, you, you know, and, and we, could, we could be really spiritual about this and I could be talking to you right now, to my mind, a lot of rubbish, but you might think it's good and say, you're one with the tree, and you're one with the chair, and you're one with the bathing pool, and you're one with everything. And you, and you just all go, hmm, uh, isn't that wonderful? We're all one. And I'm going, that's a nightmare. That means I'm one with a cockroach. That means, see that mess on the floor? I'm one, oh, no. But that monism, it's taught in another way as well. For example, if you've seen the film... Uh, or the six films of Star Wars. When George Lucas made those films, he wanted to teach spirituality to Western people. That was his purpose in making the films, as well as making a lot of money. Um, I did feel that I ought to go to him and say, we're all one, and I'll just take some of the money that you've made in your oneness to my oneness, and so on. But he, he, he actually had that intention, and the films teach this. So you have the force, what is the force? Now, here's the problem with monism. Let me take just two stories from this week. One is those two boys who tortured and abused those other kids. What were they, 10 years old? They were 10 years old, 9, 10 years old. And you're saying, if you're a monist, you're saying what they did is as much part of the one and the same, ultimately, as the rescue teams in Haiti who are who rescued the man this morning. It's the same thing. Ultimately, there is no difference. Ultimately, it's all part of the one. To me, that's a horrendous world to live in, and it doesn't make sense. So the second view that people have is what's called dualism or binary twofold. And most people, I think, in, in Western society, probably more people in Eastern society tend to be monists. Most people in Western society tend to be dualists. There's good and evil. Uh, the ancient Persians, the Zoroastrians, they believed in a spiritual 
uh, dualism. There's a spiritual good and there's a spiritual evil. But in Greek philosophy, which is what John is dealing with, the Gnostics, and he's arguing against them, taught that good was spiritual and evil was material. They believed in two forces, if you like, two gods, a good God and a bad God, a spiritual God and a materialistic God. So, in, in that dualistic point of view, it's the philosophy of the Sun newspaper, for example, that the, the, the two wee boys are just pure evil, and Mother Teresa or the rescuers are pure good. Pure, by the way, is going to come up a lot in this, and if you're a Dundonian, you'll appreciate the use of your native language, pure, being one of the words that's used many, many times. But pure evil, pure good. And that's how people look at it. And that, that dualistic mindset is what we have. Now, what John does here is something that is completely different and blows all that apart because he teaches something that's not monist and that's not dualist and that no religion in the world and nobody in the world has ever got. And yet here is this simple fisherman teaching us this. It seems to be monist at one level because he says there's one God. He's a good Jew. He knows that there is one God. The Lord our God is one. But then it appears to be dualist because he's saying darkness doesn't come from God. So he's saying, there is darkness, there is evil, but there's only one God. So are you really saying there's two gods or, or, or what's going on? John is saying that not only is there not another God, another evil God, a dark God, but he's also saying this, and this is the really important bit. He's saying there's not a dark side to God. God's light is pure. It's unadulterated. He's not just saying God is light. He's saying God is light in such a way that there's nothing dark in God. Now, why is this important? Because we tend to create God in our own image. One man writes, if God made man in his own image, then man has returned the compliment. We tend to have a projection of God that is how we view ourselves or other people. Now, you might instantly say, no, no, I don't do that. Yes, you do. Because your fears about God are your fears about yourself. They're your fears about other people. The devil tempted Eve in the garden by asking, did God really say? Many, many people buy into a dualistic view of God. They say, oh, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, but I do like the Jesus of the New. Conveniently being ignorant about the God of the Old Testament being love and the Jesus of the New speaking about hell. But nonetheless, they have this dualistic view of God. There's a God who's angry. And there's a God who's love. There's a God who's good. And there's a God who's jealous. There's a God who saves. There's a God who will destroy. And this, this dualistic mentality is deeply, deeply ingrained in us, in our psyche, in how we think, and in how we feel. But, John says, there is no darkness in God at all. Now, that immediately causes people to ask, where does the darkness come from? And I don't have time to go into this, but we could talk about it. St. Augustine argues that darkness wasn't, the darkness wasn't created, the evil wasn't created, it's a negation of the good, and so on. I actually don't know the answer to that question. But I do know this, that your starting point has to be there is no darkness in God. And I'm going to keep repeating, there is no darkness in God. Now, let me tell you how important and foundational that is. And for me, 
maybe I'm just thick. I've been a Christian for over 25 years. I've been a minister for most of that, teaching the Bible. And I realized that emotionally and spiritually, I've been a dualist. I've been afraid that maybe God doesn't really mean it, that maybe there's a dark side, that like Eve was tempted in the garden when the devil came and said, did God really say that emotionally I find myself in a position where I'm thinking, well, what if God, what if God, what if, rather than coming to beginning with the character of God and who He is, and this is what my friend wrote me uh, this morning. He says this, I realize how much of my troubles, failure to trust, venture all and love Him back, stem from failure to grasp this glorious truth. I can't get past it. Everything seems impacted by it. It is a most glorious and practical doctrine because it leads to worship, love, faith, and peace. Why is that the case? Because, how does this work? I might look at, and in fact I've been asked to talk about uh, at a university about, you know, if God exists, then why do earthquakes happen like in Haiti? If you approach that not understanding that God is light, then you're going to approach it thinking, well, maybe God, maybe God is unjust. Maybe God, you know, this, maybe this shows that God is unfair. But if you start with your basis being God is light, there is no darkness in Him at all, then the first thing that's ruled out completely is that God is unjust, that there's a dark side. Or if God has promised you something through His Word and you fear that it's not going to happen or you fear that it's not true, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Well, will He really give me rest? Maybe I have to do this. Maybe I have to do that. Maybe it's a trick. Maybe there's a dark side. Maybe when I walk through the door, I'll find that God isn't really like that. You see how important that is. It changes absolutely everything. The quote, uh, I was given another one from John Owen. And I think this is beautiful. I'm going to leave it there for a wee while. You can uh, have a look at it and reflect on it as we, as we continue to look at this. Many saints have no greater burden in their lives than that their hearts do not constantly del delight and rejoice in God. There, in there is still in them a resistance to walking close with God. So do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in Him. Sit down for a while at this spring of living water and you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will now not be able, even for a second, to keep at any distance from Him. Because if you are a Christian, why you, why you do not delight in God is because you're looking at yourself, you're not really looking at God, and when you do look at God, you do so primarily through your own lens, which is one of fear, saying, maybe God doesn't really, maybe God won't really, maybe there's a dark side. And so you're secure in yourself to some degree. You're not willing to really take hold of God. And that's why this is so important. There are no tricks with God. There's no capriciousness with God. There's no evil in God. There's no darkness in God. God never lies. God is never unjust. God is always pure, always absolute, always holy. And don't you dare ever sit and think as though it was the other way around. Well, I'm not going to believe in God because. Because what? What gives you that right? Who, who are you that you think that you're pure to, to judge God? Well, if I was God, I would. Well, if God, don't, you don't get it. You don't grasp it. God is pure. God is absolute. God is light. And you, you, you want to sit in judgment on his light when you have so much darkness in yourself? That, that's not how it works.
God's light shines on us. God's light illumines. Now, again, I'm not going to go into all of this, but God's light tells us about himself. That's what we need to be able to see. God's light is the opposite of the Gnostic teaching that John was facing, where people were saying, our religion is all about mysteries and stuff, and you can't understand it unless you become part of this. And the answer is no, you can grasp it, you can get it. Even if you've been, you're here and you've never been here before, you can still know God. The gospel is revealed to you. There were religious people in Jesus' day who claimed to know the truth, and they never ever got it. They never saw Jesus. They never grasped it. And there were other people, like our fisherman here, John, who got it straight away and who followed the light. But this is what the light does. The light shines. If we claim to have fellowship, verse 8, with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. When God's light shines, everything changes. Because what you thought was good and pure in your life, it's again like the, the, the phone screen that's in the dark or the computer screen that's in the dark. But when the light shines in it, you realize it's not as clean as you thought. It's like um, never, ever get white carpet if you're a Robertson anyway because, because it's just going to show up when I spill. I mean, I spill tea on a dark carpet. That's okay. I can, we can live with that. Nobody will ever know. I spill tea on a white carpet. Everyone's going to know. When God's light shines, it changes everything. Sometimes there's a song that Christians sing about shine, Jesus, shine, and we all think, wouldn't that be wonderful? Jesus shining, Jesus shining. Yes, it would be wonderful, but it would also be terrible. It's also something that just would be very, very, very uncomfortable. God's light exposes our sin. John Stott says, Christianity is the only religion which, by emphasizing that God is light, first insists on taking sin seriously and then offers a satisfactory moral solution to the problem of sin. The way to have fellowship with a God who is light is not to deny the fact or effects of sin, but to confess our sins and thankfully appropriate God's provision for our cleansing. So John tells us Jesus has come. God is light. And when, when the light comes, it shines up and it shows. But he then contrasts two different attitudes, again, amongst people who profess to be Christians. He talks about... Christians who lie seems a strange thing. If we, we profess to be Christians, we claim to have fellowship, yet walk in the darkness. Plenty of people claim intimacy with God, yet walk in darkness. I'm sure that there are some of you here today, and you know, you are, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus. Shine, Jesus, shine. I want to follow the Lord. But you're not a light in your community, and you're not a witness in your community because the light within you is darkness. It's not the light of God. There are Christians who say, well, God is light. A little bit of darkness doesn't bother him. Why is my fellowship with God so bad? Why is your fellowship with God so bad sometimes? Because if we don't walk in the light, we're lying. The Greek word used is we're pseudos, we're fakes, we're hypocrites. 
We refuse to accept the light God has given in the revelation of the Scriptures. We prefer the darkness of our own way. There is a heart of darkness within us. We lie about our relationship with God, and we do not do the truth. That's what it says here. Do not live by the truth. It's literally, do not do the truth. Why oh, I hear the truth. I accept the truth. I believe the truth. I teach the truth. I'll talk about the truth. I'll have the text on my wall. But John says, I am not even remotely interested. I want to know, do you do the truth? God is light. And if you walk in darkness, you don't get it. That's what we read in John 3. If you read the, the last part again from verse 19, where it talks, that people didn't accept it. They continued to walk in darkness. And isn't that a paradox? Isn't that a strange thing? And isn't that a disgrace to the gospel of Jesus Christ that lots and lots of us who profess to be Christians, we say, God is light, God is light. Yes, it's wonderful. But we live in the shadows. We live in the darkness. We don't walk. We don't do the truth. Verse 7 talks about those who do. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, walking is a kind of metaphor for the whole of life. Now, this doesn't mean, this verse does not mean you have to go around and tell everyone everything that you ever do, and you're completely open and vulnerable and naked before people. Horrible thought, and not what the Bible teaches. But it says that we walk in the light of God. There's no point trying to hide. There's no point pretending. There's no point in hypocrisy, because God's light will shine anywhere. You can't hide from God's light which is why religious hypocrisy is the worst hypocrisy of all, because it's so dumb and it's so stupid, because you're professing to believe in a God who sees everything and you're hiding from Him. That doesn't make sense. Now, if you walk in the light, and that's just, a, it's just again, a metaphor for saying a, a lifestyle which is, has Christ at the center and is following Jesus Christ and is acknowledging and worshiping Jesus Christ, and just living, just not compartmentalizing, not having the wee religious bit here, and then your relationship bit here, and then your work bit here, and then the other bits. It's just the whole thing coming in the light of Christ. Then look at what happens, and it's a surprising thing, because he says, it doesn't say if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with God, which is true, but he says if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Again, simple question, simple answer. Why is our fellowship in the church not as deep as it can be? Because we're not walking in the light. The heretics were saying in John's day, we can have fellowship with God without having fellowship with our brothers and sisters. But the biggest obstacle we have to have fellowship with one another is sin. And that's why we need to walk in the light. And that's why this, the, I, I gave the verses there from Hebrews. If you've got I hope that you'll read them when you're at home, Hebrews 9. Read the whole of the chapter if you can, which talks about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin. It's a beautiful song by you too, where um, it's called White as Snow. Uh, and I think it's a gorgeous thing. And it, and it asks, what can make my heart as white as snow? If only a heart could be as white as snow. Because my, my heart is not as white as snow, and your heart is not. And when Lizzie's baptized, she's not saying her heart is as white as snow. It's not. But the baptism is a symbol of how it does become as white as snow. How are we cleansed? Through the blood of Jesus. Now, again, I, I, let me explain that just because it sounds so horrendous in our culture, in our idea. In the Old Testament, the blood was the life. The blood sacrifice 
was talking about the death. On the Day of Atonement, at the end of September, an animal died for the sins of the people. Blood's taken into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled on the altar. All that's pictorial, it's symbolic, it's pointing forward to the day when the Son of God would come and would himself be the sacrifice and would enter the Holy of Holies in heaven with his own sprinkled blood. And it is that blood that cleanses us because what makes us dirty is our sin. Our sin needs to be removed. It can't just be, oh, well, forgive that, forget that, forget that, forget that. There's a price that is paid because our sin is so deep and our sin is so real and it is so ugly and it is so dark and it is so against the light. You don't just say, ah, never mind. It does mind. It does matter. And what Jesus did was extraordinary. And his death on the cross for us, when Lizzie's getting baptized, she's not saying, look, I'm a wonderful person. Look what I'm, look what I'm doing. What she's saying is, look what's happened to me. Jesus' blood cleansed me from all sin. Sure, I do things that are wrong. Sure, I'm struggling, as Paul describes in Romans 7. I struggle with the good that I want to do and I don't do and the evil I don't want to do. But the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sin. It's like you, you see these adverts for you know, the washing tablet or whatever, that continues to clean even after it's gone. I have no idea what that means. It just seems nonsense. But um, in a sense, that's what John's saying, because he says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, and it's a, it's a verb that's used in continuous, and it says it just keeps happening. It just keeps happening. It doesn't say that we're perfectly sinless. We'll see that next week. But it does say we're continuously cleansed. We keep coming back to Jesus. Now, imagine this in your own home. Imagine you're a young child or an older child. Or imagine with your partner. And you do something that's wrong. A lot of us seem to think that we would operate on a kind of three strikes and you're out routine. You know, okay, you did something wrong once. I can live with that. You know, you, you broke that glass um, fine. But you did it again, and then you did it again. Can you keep going back and asking for forgiveness? In all of our relationships, none of us think that we can do that. And a lot of us do operate the three strikes and you're out kind of things. But what is John is saying here is this, is he's saying, as you go on as a Christian, you will discover again and again and again your sin, and you can keep coming back to Jesus. Jesus is never, ever going to say, that's enough. You've come back to me 20 times. No. 70 times 7. No. It's never that the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us. That Christ makes us as white as snow. That's why, that's how you can live if you're a Christian and you're aware of what God has done. It's how you can live because you're aware of your own sin which would overwhelm you and destroy you. You're aware of the pure light of God. It would just, it would zap you if you like. But because Jesus has forgiven, Jesus has forgiven, Jesus has died, you are forgiven, you are forgiven. It, it, it's just an incredible thing. Now, it doesn't make you say, oh, I'll go out and sin then. You haven't got it if you, if, if you think that. But what it does mean is you keep coming to Jesus. The words of the hymn, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Or the more modern one, what can take away my sin? What can give me peace within? Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, please get this. 
In your life, you will be seeking many, many things. Forgiveness, light, life, love, all these things. You will never, ever get them if you don't come to Jesus. The word for cleansing that John uses is a word cathartic. I looked that up in the dictionary because I wasn't quite sure what it meant. I'm not as smart as my sister or other people who've got, do these, we do these big brain competition on the, on the iPhone and I just discovered I'm not the biggest brain in my family and it's traumatized me. It's been cathartic. But anyway, I looked up cathartic in the dictionary because I just wasn't quite sure. I thought, I think I know what that means. And this is what it says. Providing psychological relief through the expression of strong but previously repressed emotions. Here's what happens. As God shines His light, as God works in us, it's a deeply cathartic experience because it goes very deep, right into the inmost part of our being, right to what we really are. And it erases sin. It erases the stain of sin. We stand before God as if we've never sinned at all. And all that repressed emotion, all that guilt is gone. It's an extraordinary thing that the light of God doesn't just shine within us, but the light of God cleanses us. It's a cathartic experience. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Let me finish this by applying this in three ways. The Greek word for darkness, believe it or not, is skotia, from which you get the term Scotland. I'm not sure that Scotland was named from the Greek word for darkness. I think it's just one of those coincidences. But we live in a land of darkness, spiritually speaking. We live in an extraordinarily beautiful land that when the sun shines and the light shines, there's just so, such incredible beauty. But when it's gray and dreek, and forgive me saying this, Glasgow weather, um, for those of you from Glasgow, but when it's gray and dreek and just that kind of, you, oh, it's, it's oppressive. But in a spiritual sense, in Scotland, there is a darkness over this land. There is a darkness over the people. There's a darkness in the eyes, a darkness in the faces of people. And yet, there's such potential beauty when the sun comes, when the light comes. And what we need is God's light to shine upon us. It's what we really need in this land. For those of you who are not Christians, I, I know one of the biggest objections to becoming a Christian. It's not intellectual. It's not show me it's true, you know, and all that kind of stuff. For some, that's a kind of thing. But be honest, that's mostly an excuse. I'll tell you the biggest fear is emotional and spiritual, and it's this. It's really doubting. What if God isn't like you say he is? What if God isn't like he says he is in the Bible? What if God is lying? What if God's a cosmic chess player? What if God's doing, will do bad things to me? I just better stay away from God. I'm going to stay with what I know, which is me. Except it's not enough. You don't know you well enough. That's why this is so important. God is light. Let me tell you this. You trust in anybody else, no matter who they are, they are there's a dark side to them. And if you trust in yourself, there's a dark side to you. There's a real dark side to you. And you can bury it and you can suppress it. And it will destroy you. But there's no 
dark side to God at all. You don't have Darth Vader turning, you know, you, don't, you just don't have anything like that in terms of God. He is pure, he's holy, he's unadulterated light. And that's why, if you're not a Christian, the most essential thing that you could possibly do now and don't even wait is to give your life to the God who is absolutely pure and holy and trustworthy, the God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. It's to follow Jesus Christ. For me, I do think that is a wonderful thing to do. And for those of us who are Christians, an old hymn from a man called Favor. My God, how wonderful thou art, thy majesty how bright, how beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. If you're a Christian, you've trusted in God, and you doubt because the devil says, you've been bad, or the devil says, the church is not good, or the devil says, with that illness, who knows what's going to happen? God's maybe getting you, or with that job loss, or anything like that. You just turn around and forgive the expression. You basically smash the devil in the teeth by just simply saying, God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. I trust him completely. He's not going to lead me in darkness. He's going to lead me in light. Let's pray. Lord, help us as we consider this. Thank you that you are light. Be with us and enable us to know each one of us, especially any of us who don't know you, that we would come to you. And those of us who do, Lord, forgive us when we've sat in judgment upon you, when we've allowed our fears to dominate. You are light. In you, there is no darkness at all. We worship you and praise you for that. In your name.